Whether you think you can or you can't, you're right. Hello and welcome to the I Could Never Do That podcast. I'm Carrie Barrett, and these are the stories of people who have gone into the arena and fought hard to achieve the unthinkable in spite of the fact that, yes, sometimes they are scared and do have some insecurities. Are you ready to go in? It's my hope that after hearing some of these interviews with thought leaders and artists, athletes, musicians, and entrepreneurs, that maybe you too will be able to go from, I could never do that, to, you know what? Maybe I can. Do you remember when you were like eight, nine, 10, 12, 16, 18, 24 years old? Do you remember all of those phases that you went through? What were your dreams? What were your aspirations? What were your goals? Like a lot of little girls, my guest, Jenna Hoban, wanted to be a performer. Now, in all transparency, Jenna and I went to high school together, and we bonded quite quickly over the very cool subject of musical theater, um, as you do. And of course, she gracefully and beautifully danced her way through Oklahoma while I stood somewhere on the back of the stage as a chorus girl dressed in a prairie dress singing, you know, Surrey with a fringe on top or something like that. But we both went on to do several plays together in high school, uh, including Annie. Thank you very much. And the one thing of many that we had in common was that we both craved attention and adoration. And as she says in this interview, as the middle child of her family, she would do pretty much anything, anything to get attention. And she meant it. Now, I, being the youngest of five and the only girl in the family, also sought that same attention through humor and music, radio, whatever I could do to make people laugh. So needless to say, we bonded big time. And at the ripe old age of 14 or 15, we declared that we were going to move to New York someday, and we were going to act, and we were going to dance and sing, and finally, once and for all, earn that adoration. And well, my friends, one of us actually did it, and it it wasn't me. So Jenna Hoban lives in New York with her husband and daughter and makes her living as a writer, a director, and an actor. She was most recently on an episode of The Equalizer featuring Queen Latifah, and her plays have been produced at theaters across the country for the last several years. So quite literally today, this is a, an incredibly intimate conversation because we catch up, literally. We haven't talked in person or via Zoom in a couple of years. And so we talk through everything that she went through to live out that childhood dream of hers. And let me be honest with you and forewarn you, it does take some crazy twists and turns that that no one was expecting. And those twists and turns have more than impacted the performer and the writer that she is today. And yeah, reality might look a little different from what we all imagine when we're seven years old and we want to be a star, but, but Jenna is very clear that this is what she was born to do. And to me, she's a star. Please welcome Jenna Hoban. 
Oh, this is okay. All right, Hoban. Hi. You will always be Hoban. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Um, so this show, I could never do that, is all about talking to people who are doing those things that most of us would say, oh, I could never, ever do that. Except that you, ever since I've known you, and very clearly before I've known you, you were always the girl that was, oh, I'm going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my sister and I have a phrase about, I could never do that. When she, your listeners who don't know my family, she moved to Europe and she's been living in the Czech Republic for the last 12 years. And she said, people say to her all the time, oh, I could never do that. And she's always like, well, no one's asking you to. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's something different for everybody. And I think about some of the things that you do that I'm like, well, I could never do that, you know, but um, yeah, it is weird. The things I think where we, we leap like why, why? Uh, yeah. And I am a strange breed. I do things that I think most people think are just terrifying or crazy. Mm -hmm. Yes. Which is, I believe pretty much what drew us to each other. I don't know, maybe 30 years ago at this point, yeah. our friendship goes back a long time. And before we hit record, I was saying that, you know, my first real memories of us bonding were a high school theater trip to New York. And you said, whoa, 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 hit record, back it up, <laughs> sister. It was before that. Well, and yeah, I think it had to be that first play that we did together, which was my first high school show, The Brilliant... Rodgers and Hammerstein, Oklahoma, which is brilliant. I do not mean to take anything away from it, but I do want to point out that like, I have no business being in any musical ever because I don't sing. You can, you're a musical. No, 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 no. Yes, you can. Listeners, she played the lead in Annie, just so you know, she did. Do you know that the lead in Annie is essentially a girl just shout singing? That's all you do. You just like shout sing. Not and... maybe, maybe far away. <laughs> no, yeah. you can't shout maybe. <laughs> oh, but I did. And that's. You were wonderful. Yeah. Oh, um, why? Well, thank you. We thank were... you. Let's go yeah, live it in the past. I love Let's this. I love going back to the Back when we were musical theater stars. Um, no, our good yes. friend Tracy was the lead in Oklahoma, and she has the best voice of all of us, let's be clear. But um, I knew that my only way in that musical was um, I was I could dance. So when we had the auditions, I wrote on the audition sheet that I was auditioning for Dream Lori, which is a specifically the dance. And I'm sure that's how I got in, because there's I couldn't really sing, and I was a freshman, so it was not really easy to get in. And, and we made friends, of course we made friends. I mean, you and I were like, we have enough things in common and, you know, everybody loves you. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, the feeling is mutual. And I think that the thing that we have in common is that we're neither one of us are, and don't take this the wrong way. We're like, we're not like girly, 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 girlies, right? Like we have, we, we, uh, we can vamp up and you vamped me up for prom once or twice. I knew that was coming. But, yeah, of course it was. And there will be photos, but there, there, but there's also this like dirty side of us, like gritty, yeah, yeah, gritty yeah. side. The, the girls us, I like, went to college with called it trucker girls. We're trucker girls. 
And I have been known to be known called dude girl or little, little dude or whatever. And I, and I embrace that. I embrace that uh, very proudly, but, but, but like, but you grew up in a house full of girls. It was you and two sisters and your goal, your dream. I think all three of you probably, maybe not Kelly, I don't know, but wasn't it just to be these wonderful dancer, actresses, ballerinas. I mean, you guys were the, the nutcracker and I was a nutcracker, but of, of another definition, <laughs> you, you were actually in the we nutcracker, were. weren't you? Yeah, yeah, we were a dance family for sure. But I don't know, like, I don't know when that stopped defining each of us, you know, for my older sister and for your listeners who don't know, she's now, she's deceased. My, my older sister died um, when she was 22 and, um, but she was the best dancer of all of us. And then when she got to high school, she sort of, well, she became a cheerleader that, which was like a really natural progression for her and, um, kind of left the ballet behind. And so I don't think that for my older sister that she ever, I don't think she would have been a professional performer. I don't think that was her thing. No. Okay. Um, okay. and my little sister, was was better at me um, in cheerleading. She's probably better at me than dancing and probably better at me than acting Shakespeare. But that being on stage really wasn't her calling. She's creative in other ways. Um, and I think inside that family, perhaps, I don't know, being a middle child, I would have done anything for attention. And this is not too far away from the title of this podcast, which is like, I was always looking for the thing that would get me attention and, and acting was the thing that I would do fearless. I would, I would do whatever it was. Like I'll get on that stage and tap dance. Even if I don't know how to tap dance, I will sing in Oklahoma, even though we all know I can't carry a tune. If, if it was my, it was my, my fastest Avenue to attention. Cause I wasn't athletic and I wasn't that smart. <laughs> I, even got, I got by, but I was no, um, uh, valedictorian was it were you valedictorian <laughs> or saluted what were you i i don't i gave one of the speeches i don't remember yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah right okay um <laughs> no i well so yeah i guess I, I i understand you being the middle child i'm the youngest and so there is there's this always uh attention seeking <laughs> aspect of our personalities because the only way I was going to get attention in my family and beyond aside the fact that I was the only one with ovaries was like I was had to be good at athletics or I had to stand out in other ways and so I was always the funny one so you were always going into the acting side and you wanted to do um theater and, and, and acting which we'll, we'll get into the fact that yes I could never do that you are doing it Whereas I was like, oh, I need to just make a fool of myself. I need to do comedy. I need to, you know, write horrible songs and try to play them, you know, like all of those things that, that we do when we're 10, 11 and 12, not even subconscious or not even consciously realizing why we're doing it. But then that thing becomes like, even now, as we're both on the precipice of 50, you're a little behind me, but not much. Mm -mm, um, close. <laughs> it's still, yeah, it's still the thing that like, I go back to the days that I go back to the moments I go back to the craft that I go back to where I find I am most myself. So yeah. when you were acting then as a child and in high school in our, you know, cheesy plays, like 
Did you feel like that was you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I also think what you've just identified is our create, I mean, our, mine and yours, but even beyond that, like our, as humankind, our inclination to be creative. And the older that I get, the better I think I am at channeling my creativity where it belongs, you know, and I, um, I was talking about writing recently and I realized like, and this is probably only within the last decade that I realized that the reason why I write is because that is how I translate life. <laughs> life happens to me and I translate it. I make a story out of it. And in my case, you know, I do, I do write and put things down, but the most of what I write is, is the end game is performance. So um, telling stories might be through somebody else's play, but it's often my own writing that I that I get up and perform, which is not unlike a stand up comic, which, you know, you I know you've done that. So part so, you know, when I, I mentioned my sister in Europe and she's a visual artist, she, she can write, she can actually can all do that. But I think for her, it's the swiftest avenue of expression, which is how I think I ended up still acting still writing, you know, as I near the age of 50, which is like, it is still the swiftest way for me to communicate myself. And because I've tried other things and I enjoy them, but like, they don't always, you know, I, it doesn't, if it doesn't come as naturally to me, I don't want to waste the time on it. I want to get right to the thing, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, you did your undergrad at Wright State in Dayton, Ohio. And what was your what was your bachelor's? Oh, it was a BFA, Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting. And then, okay. Carrie, in case you didn't know, that I have the most redundant education. I got an <laughs> MFA also in acting, which is for, for my young listeners, <laughs> for our young listeners who are thinking about it, I don't really think that's, I don't think that's the way to do it. I mean, I think a little variety inside the education is a good idea. But yeah, I got a BFA in acting at the age of, you know, and then there we are like between the ages of 18 and 21, trying to learn how to act. I mean, it's like, come on. I, I don't I feel like you can go through those steps, but <laughs> you need to you'd have some life. No, that's interesting. Okay. So you don't feel like the, all of that formal education in college and beyond prepped you for real acting. It absolutely did. But I, I would not be the actor I am today with the life that filled in the blanks. So, you know, I think actor training is um, valuable. <laughs> so let me, let me, you know, all those years that I dedicated to my education, let me just say, yes, they were valuable. And there are techniques that were articulated for me. Which, you know, when we were 16 and 17 and producing performances on a high school stage, a lot of times we were getting it wrong, right? I mean, like we were doing something <laughs> external to speak for yourself, lady. <laughs> yeah, not you. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not you as the lead yeah, in the perfection. <laughs> yeah, you know, like uh, there are these sort of like external things that we do to indicate I am um, this, you know, young woman in the middle of Oklahoma. <laughs> Right. No, a century ago. <laughs> um, or, you know, maybe not even that far away. Like we did my my you had already graduated when we did Steel Magnolias, which is a very substantial script and um characters and dialogue. 
And I was filling that, trying to fill it with, you know, 17 years of life experience. So there were some things I think that I got totally wrong because I could I couldn't really fill in those blanks. But then, then there were other things that we nailed. You know, we really did, we got it right because we were talking and listening with each other and we were, we understood humor and so there were things that we got right. So actor training for me was a way to take those things that we were getting right and help refine them so that when you enter a play that is less close to your heart, you know, a character that's a little bit further away, you have some techniques to turn to and that we can speak about our art form so that when I go into a rehearsal with a director I've never met and, and five other cast members that I don't know, we have a language for one another um, that is respectful and that, um, it acknowledges the creative process. Oh, I'm just like gobbledygook. It just <laughs> yeah, sounds that like was, I just, that was accurate. Yeah, word I just started right to get a little, a little too. No, artsy, no, I think, but it's so, but it's so, it's so valuable because it's, um, it has to not be unlike any normal job. I mean, I think people think of acting as it's, it's, it's make believe it's quote unquote, not a real job. And, and please don't take any offense to that. But like, but yeah, if you walk into, I don't know, nationwide insurance, and you're meeting a boss for the first time, i.e. the director, you're meeting your co-stars for the first time, you have to know, like there has to be a language that's understood within this team for all of you to work together, even if you don't really know what you're doing just yet. So I understand that in layperson's terms. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, when did you feel like so I, I don't, maybe let me phrase it a different way. In, in high school, you know, we joke that we got a lot of things wrong because you're right. We're, we're talking about in Steel Magnolia's case, humor and grief and just like despair in certain cases and certain scenes that you hadn't been able to draw upon yet in real life. But there's also a vulnerability that young, young people have mm -hmm. that, that we don't necessarily have any more as adults. Like we are now way more closed off, way more guarded. We want to hide some of those weak aspects that actually make you a really damn good performer. So do you, did you ever feel any of that shift happening or because of your training, were you able just to stay open? I think that this again is one of my odd qualities that I have always enjoyed living in my emotions. <laughs> and I, you know, oh, freaks me out. <laughs> it makes, I'm sweating. I'm sweating. Uncomfortable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 So are all of my ex-boyfriends. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, What's up to the ones I know? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I, it, and again, it took me, you know, where I think we are self-centered human beings for the, much of our lives. And it took me a long time to realize like, oh, I, that is unusual. That um, a, um, not just ability, but the indulgence in my emotions just doesn't live for other people. It doesn't, it's not there for other people. And also because my training was so narrow, I was in the acting world. The minute I got out of high school that I, I, the people that I was interacting with were at least partial, at least willing to go in that emotional world and live there. Even if they didn't want to spend their, their um, reality there, they were willing to go there for work and for this education. And then it's like later in my life, I'm like, oh yeah, no, most of humankind is not comfortable there. <laughs> so, so yeah. 
So it's like then two things happen. I mean, for me, I don't look back at a little girl who was like, oh, remember how comfortable she was? Because I still live in that place. But I do think um, I... I have, I've had to learn how to cope in the real world. I've had to learn how to um, um, use my emotions wisely, you know, and not use them in um, um, a dramatic or a um, manipulative way, which I'm not proud of, but I, I was doing it for years, you know, bursting out into tears for attention or for whatever I needed. If, if I thought it was going to get me what I wanted. Um, I still have a hard time controlling my emotions <laughs> in real life. I mean, like I, I still have, like, I raise my voice at times. Um, and I, when it happens, it always sort of like shocks and embarrasses me. And then, and then I've come to this other discovery about my emotional world and my acting world, which is like, for me, sometimes acting is like, oh, there's, there's this sort of like doing that I have to figure out like, okay, what am I going to do vocally for this character? Like, what am I going to do with my body? But when it comes to emotion, usually the question is, how can I withhold, <laughs> you know? Interesting. Interesting. It's like you got to hold that back for as long as you can because you can't go up there and just, you know, let it, it'll just ruin the play. You have to hold things, hold things back. You can't know everything right at the beginning of the story. Right. I don't know if this is a great segue for that, but you mentioned knowing everything at the beginning of the story. And Yes, you have done a tremendous amount of acting. You've done Shakespeare. You've done, and, and I'm I'm like surface surfacing a lot of this stuff. But you have also been a writer mm -hmm. and a director. But you've written so many of your own plays. Many of them, like one woman shows. Yeah, uh, not all though, right? right? Not all, right? Not all of them, and they're very, <clears throat> at least to me many of them are, are somewhat autobiographical loosely. Uh, yeah. I mean, yes, that's generous. It's, I mean, they're all, yeah, they're all, this is what I said. It's like in, in the terms of, well, yeah. Okay. So the 12 dates of Christmas, let's use that one. And um, the one that followed no spring chicken, because those are the ones that got produced and <laughs> published. But what I yeah. say when people say like, did that really happen to you? I'm like, everything you see in this play is based on something real. It, it's, um, but in some cases it was like a kernel that I really dramatized for the stage, you know, like a little idea. And then I, I, you know, we pull it as playwrights, we pull it and we exaggerate. <laughs> But yes, I mean, I think it's safe to say just much of my work is 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 autobiographical or based on something in my life. Sure. And do you then know, you know, this is what you're speaking to before, but you can't overact because you've got to bring the audience along with you. You can't like project what's going to happen. So like when you are writing, when you're in the process, let's take 12 dates um, because I've I've seen that produced a couple of different times. And do you know? Do you know the arc of the story? And these are very elementary questions and forgive me for asking them. But like when I look at uh, something that somebody's written, whether it's a book or a, a play, even a song, sometimes I'm like, how, how does that come to, how does that come to fruition from character development to arc of the story to dialogue? I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming. So what is, what is that process for you? Well, it's different from play to play. 
And um, it. When, let me start by saying the 12 dates of Christmas, my <clears throat> motivation for writing and creating that play was unlike any other one, which is that I just saw a void in the holiday canon. <laughs> and that was a result. Like just there, nobody had really um, tackled the solo female holiday comedy. There are a couple out there, but there are many, many, many that were created for men, either solo male holiday play or a duo, a two, two male and then there's Christmas Carol, which is predominantly male, and a Christmas story, which is predominantly male. Um, and I could go on and on. But anyway, I saw this void and I was like, oh, I should make this happen. Also had just, I was like newly single and back in the dating world. So that's why, um, I don't know, it just sort of fell together that I was like, okay, so we'll have these 12 dates. And I knew I wanted it to, to go all through the calendar year. And I knew um, that I, well, it's a holiday play, right? And I'm like, let's mm -hmm. think about what people want at the holiday season, right? <laughs> so like, I don't think it's going to end in death. <laughs> I'm just pretty sure it's going to have a happy ending. Um, and, the, and, you know, this is like 12 years ago. For me, I couldn't bring myself the sort of like um feminist that I, I came out of the womb, a feminist that I was like, it just, I can't, my happy ending can't be... And then the boy and the girl get together. I'm like, I did just can't be that. So Okay. So we don't have okay, so we've so we've ixnade death, death <laughs> and we've ixnade happy ending. Right. Well, <laughs> like happily ever storybook after, ending. Right? Yes. I knew yes, it was gonna be yes. that. So, you know, my protagonist just basically picks herself and, and goes like, Okay, I got, you know, I have to find happiness. It's not that literal, you take from it what you take from it. Some people say, Oh, I always always assumed she did eventually, mm -mm, you know get together with that guy. I'm like, great, you know, whatever, you, <laughs> whatever works for you. Um, but predominantly a comedy. So in that one, I had a shape. I had um, plenty of comic material from my dating history and from that of my friends who were willing to share their stories. Um, and I think for me, a sw the sweet spot with a solo show is around 75 minutes. So that really helped me go like, okay, it can be this much material. And I overrode and then cut and cut and cut. Now I'm writing a new play right now. I just sent you an, an email. I saw that. <laughs> and I wanted, I actually want to get to that because I have, um, no, we'll get to okay. it. But yes, I have, I have stacks of diaries that need to be lit on fire. Okay, well, let's, Literally. we're going to schedule a party somewhere between our 50th birthdays and we shall burn. <laughs> they will burn. Yeah, so they will burn. They need to. This one, this process is very different because I have been collecting material for my current solo show for, for four years now, probably three. I think it started when we were like all in lockdown and I thought I was going to write a memoir. And then I don't know, partway through it, I was like, I think I can do this. I think I can push through and write this memoir. But this goes back to what I was saying earlier. I was like, it's not it's not the quickest way to my expression. And what I'm really good at is performing. Like that's how I'm a storyteller. So I was like, well, what if you just do that? What if you just, where's the solo show here? <laughs> Again, not a question that everybody else is asking themselves, right? But to me, it was the most obvious solution. Um, so then I started to pull out stories and we, you know, we possibly get to the content of that 
of that play later. But um, I, so you asked the, the, you know, I'm answering this question you asked 20 minutes ago, <laughs> you know, like, no, I mean, it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm, I'm hanging as I always do when you speak, I'm hanging on every word. <laughs> um, well, the process for this one has just been really different. And I, you know, the, the criticism I have on my own writing now is that I, I just I sit down to work on it. And I'm like, oh, it's so unwieldy. It's trying to do too much. I have all these different themes and I'm trying to do them all and be funny at the same time. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yep. Yep. When your sh- but your shows have a way of bridging, um, that, that comedic flair for sure. They're all funny, but there's always tragedy, right? Right. There's, there's always some sort of underlying tragedy that's happening as well. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it's just, it's like, that is my lens to the world. Life is tragic. <laughs> you can't convince me otherwise it's tragic. And it's also, it's, can, am I allowed to say the F word? Of course. Um, It's fucking hilarious. (laughs) So that's, I think that's what comes across in my writing is like, I I identify the pain in in my life mostly, but I mean, wherever it is around me and I will put my finger on that bruise and then laugh about it, which is, I mean, Mm. it's distorted. I don't know what else to tell you. I'm just... It's, it's, it is, it is, uh, God, I hate this word. It is, it is like salve to a wound, right? <laughs> it is like, that's what you have to do to otherwise we would all be crying 24 hours a day, seven days a week at this point. If you can't laugh <laughs> right. at the tragedy that is, um, planet earth at this point, then. Yeah. And you know, when I think about your humor, right. And you're one of the funniest human beings I know that I'm like, what a gift. And like, it comes so naturally out of your mouth, like your comebacks. And it's just, it's so naturally that it's like, what a gift that is to other human beings who they're like, not even like, I wish I can do that. It's just like, how does that even happen? Like, right. Like, I think you take it. I hope you don't take it for granted. I think you know that that is part of your, but I I think like I am an emotional human being. There are people out there where for whom humor isn't even accept. They, they recognize it when they see it, but they're not creating it with their right, minds. Right. right. And so like, right. it takes all of us to sort of like throw our gifts out there and then help the rest of the world communicate with each other and communicate, articulate for themselves what they're feeling. Yeah. But you know, what's weird is that now, and, and this might be us old crusty women, just like, you know, kid, you know, with a cigarette hanging out of my mouth. But like, now I feel like with TikTok and reels, everyone's trying to be funny. Mm. Um, and, and it's sometimes it, sometimes it works. Like there are some hilarious things out there, but then other times I'm like, it's so cringy when you see people that are stretching to try to try to make maybe a valid point about health or something, you know, health and nutrition, but they're trying to do it through this like lens of sarcasm and humor. Mm. And I'm like, that's, that's forced, that's forced. Mm -hmm. And so like, I think that there is this, this vast difference between natural talent and, and skills that you, maybe I possess whatever, or versus like this, like forced, oh, here's a template now that everybody's doing. Let me see if I can fit into this template instead of just being this authentic self. Like you've never written. It doesn't sound like you've ever written for anyone else, but you well a little bit but i i I so i recognize what you're saying first of all when it comes to tiktok and things like um anything that's technical and reels like i have no um it's not my thing i have no talent at it um but i am embracing it for our youth i think Mm -hmm. like 
there is a wealth of creativity out there. But just like anything, like you said, when there's a big, huge pool of it, some of it's going to be better than the rest. I, I, what I identify with what you just said is like, I know that I have told jokes on stage before and had to learn, no, that doesn't work. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Or, you know, some, and sometimes it's a humor, it's some, you know, like doing somebody else's play and I think I'm doing the right delivery on it and then it just not landing. Right. Or w- w- worse, I would say, or more uncomfortably, I take a joke up on a stage that I wrote myself and realize like, it's not landing. Why is it landing? And I think to, to your point, a lot of times when it doesn't work, it's because I have made it about me. And if I have made it about me, aren't I cute? Aren't I funny? (laughs) It doesn't reach the audience. If it's about us or I don't know, guys, you feel this way too. It's so hard. It's such a fine line. So it's really hard for me to even articulate it right now. But um, I, I think part of what you are identifying in that is like, yeah, it's something about you said authentic, right? And so it's about sitting in and being unafraid of our own weirdness, our own, um, you know, the the awkward corners of us that 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 other people are going to relate to. Because if you go up there and you're just like shiny and perfect. I have a hard time relating to that. I need to see the messy yes. jagged edges. I, I need to. See you know, and I had to be taught that too, because frankly, I just want to be adored. I want everybody to think I'm beautiful. <laughs> I told you I'll do anything for attention. I want to look amazing, sound amazing. I want you to think I'm hilarious and intelligent. But but really, if that's all I presented up there was like my good hair days, I wouldn't have any friends. <laughs> right. And, and that's why that's the grit I started off this conversation with, is that that's the mark of a of a beautiful performer is like you aren't afraid to get up on stage and be ugly show the monsters so yeah let the show let the monsters, the monsters. Out. yeah yes yes but that's that is what makes people adore you <laughs> not the fact that you're like drop dead gorgeous and you can do like back bends and weird <laughs> things that i can't do like touch my toes but you mean my back fact- nobody loves me for my back bends i was sh- oh my god no i do i <laughs> Trust me, we've done Beakroom together back in the day. And I was like, I basically stopped doing what I was doing. I was like, what, what? the fuck is that? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I think like I have tendons ripping in my quads and you're just, I don't know what you were doing over there, but no, I can't help it was it. impressive. It's genetic, that backbend. And just so everybody knows. You cannot like you cannot compare your backbend to anybody else. You're born with a backbend, and whatever you're born with, that's the backbend you have. I've been trained as a yoga teacher. I try to explain this to other people. Oh, just is what it is. I know, <laughs> Jenna. We've turned yoga into a competition. Like that's that is our society now. Is that I know. yoga is actually a competition? So it makes no sense. Um, I know. And we stray once again. But you know, I had this like cute little sort of outline, but. F it. Um, the first play I remember you sharing with me that you wrote, and I don't know that you ever performed it or if, if you did, and I saw it, it's maybe got, no, maybe I came to write state to see it was Miss American pie uh-huh. breaks a stained glass window. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever write, did you ever perform that? I did. Or was that there. just, for, I think you came. I'm pretty sure I came. Like I know I came to Wright State to to see you do a show. I think you saw. Yeah, I think you and Jen and uh, Alyssa and uh, Tony Gatta, like a few. There are a few people 
that are like, I have seen every solo show you've done back to 1996. (laughs) Well, okay. So I, yes, I know. I, okay. So then I did see Miss American Pie. I definitely saw Pierced. In New York. Um, Saw Pierced in New York, came to see you in New York. And then I've seen 12 dates a couple of times. And I know the most recent time I saw you do it was in Columbus when you did it at, um, what was the theater downtown that you were in? Catco. It was the Catco theater. Yeah. Yeah. Catco theater downtown. So I think the only one that maybe I haven't seen is spring chicken. No spring chicken. Yeah. And that may have just been, you know, in the, the, what the years where, I mean, (laughs) I, I, I just couldn't travel to see it or whatever. I don't, I don't know, but yes, I have dating as far back as I guess, 96. So yeah. So like, when did you, what, like, did you, okay, let's go. Let me just talk about Miss American Pie breaks the stained glass window, because that is the first play that I remember you writing. And I, I know in my box of things somewhere. I still actually have a physical copy of the script that I printed out because I just thought it was so amazing that my friend wrote this play and, you know, we were going to be famous people. And I'm like, no, she's, she is like, (laughs) she actually is going to be like a famous person. And uh, so I held onto that script, of course. So was that a, was that a class project? Or again, was that just like, or was that a diversion of like, oh, nope, this is where I need to be right now? No, that was the thesis. That was like, we were, we, uh, my class, by the time we got to our final year, there were, I think six or eight of us. It was not a big class. And um, they required that we did this solo show. And there was this argument among the faculty about whether or not this was the appropriate thesis, right? Because it's not really the culmination of what we learn. What we learn is interacting with other people on stage, listening and being present. So to do a a monologue, is that really, are we really, you know, should that be the culmination of the study? Um, And I probably would say no, probably not, but I think it's a really valuable class. And I, um, I, I would encourage any program to do it, even if it's not a full, you know, I just think we learned so much from being on stage alone. And um, this particular program also, they they were not necessarily encouraging us to write our own play. That it was like, no, 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 you don't have to write it. We just, we want you to perform. But most people did because we're 20 years old. How many plays have been written for your <laughs> solo shows? Right. Not that many. So we're kind of like pulling together and um the class and writing that play for me was torture. It was 1995, so we were supposed to be learning how to write it in 95 and then perform it the next year. And um, as you know, that was the year that my sister was killed in a car accident. So we're, you know, we were both in college. Our younger sister is 16. Um, it was a it was a disaster in every sense of the word. It was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And then I, you know, just insanely went back to school. Like, oh, I guess I'll finish this acting degree. <laughs> Oh my God. I know. See, this is, you have to kind of color in the pieces just because it's become so it's, it's just such a blur in time. Like it's like this weird time warp for everyone that was part of your family's world. You know, I mean, it, and it it extends far and wide, as you know, as your family knows. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I'm, I am delving into it with this current play diary bonfire goes back to 1995 and tries to trace how that, 
um, death, how that loss um, in, inspired the life that I'm living. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But um, basically, I went back to school. I was trying to take this class on how to write a solo show. And I brought in some material. And it was like, I just was way out of the loop. Like, I just couldn't, I couldn't focus. I was pissed off. I was just mad. And um, I wasn't connecting to the people in my class or to my faculty members. And I remember this, we were supposed to bring in these like examples of like, here's a potential idea. And we would do like 10 minutes of material. So I brought in um, a couple of different things. And one of them was this like, (laughs) I mean, it's horrible. I shouldn't laugh about it. But um, it was like a recreation of a moment that I got the phone call that my sister had died, right? I mean, just terrible, terrible (laughs) idea. (laughs) But look, I... I needed to express something, right? And the fact that I was brave enough to bring that in could have perhaps inspired some conversation inside my class. It didn't. It didn't go well at all. (laughs) The teacher was like, "Mm, I don't know. Do you think you're really ready? Do you think maybe you're still too close to that material, that um, event to bring it in? And I was like, well, I just fucking brought it in. So I guess I'm, I mean, do you think I am? Because I obviously didn't think I was. You know, just like really grumpy about it. And the horrified expressions on my classmates who were like, oh God, I don't even know. Like, what are we supposed to clap? Like, what do we do? It was just terrible. Oh, So I don't know if it was that day or I don't know if I stormed out of class. I did a lot of storming out of class. (laughs) I was storming out of (laughs) class that year. But um, I know that there was a, a subsequent class period and I just didn't go. And I went, we had some fountain on campus. I couldn't even tell you where it is now. And I sat by this fountain and I hand wrote in a notebook, whatever the fuck I wanted. I just started writing what was on my mind and some themes started to come up and they were all unrelated. Say it was like eight different monologues, but I was like, this is my, this is what I have to say. And I was no longer trying to write somebody else's story. I was just like, well, I'm just going to say what's on my mind. And then I cra- I started to craft those monologues and try to find transitions and themes. And I had plenty of time to do it. Um, and that's what ended up becoming Miss American Pie Breaks Stained Glass Window, which, you know, it's so nice to hear you say kind things about it because it is so cringy for me when I go back and I think about what I was saying at, you know, 2021 and, and what, I don't know, just like how I was interpreting the world. But I guess to finish this little chapter in this little play is when I got up, um, we had these rehearsal rooms and I would go into this rehearsal room and and practice. I was the only one in the room and I would memorize this material and then figure out how I was going to perform it on a stage. And something happened to me in that process that is unreversible and has created the actor that I am today, which is that I had to um, own it. I had to own that material and I knew how to own it because I had written it. So I felt like I, I felt like the expert. I was like, I am absolutely the expert. I know how this will be done. And my advisor, I remember my advisor coming in one time and she said, um, I don't know, Jenna, that seems like a pretty, um, uh, a really bold transition there. Uh, like, uh, you might want to work on that transition. And I remember looking at her and I was like, oh no, that's going to work. I, that's going to work in performance. I, I know how that's going to work. And after the show, she came up to me and she goes, you totally made that work. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I knew I was the expert of this material. And the point of all that is to say that I then took that ownership and that audacity and I started to be able to own the words of other playwrights too. So it it just made me a better actor. It just made me a better actor. Now, I still have to, 
I have so much work to do. I'm not, but this is an, um, an unending journey learning, you know, being an artist in, in, in any form. But um, I look for that now when I write my own stuff, there are these things that I'm like choices, bold choices, ridiculous things that I will do or say that I wouldn't necessarily do with somebody else's work because we want to treat them with respect. Right. And and Shakespeare mm-hmm. is a great example of this. Like we feel like there's a way it's supposed to be done. Well, that process of like just doing it, being the expert has taught me like no playwrights, uh, all playwrights want actors that are going to come in and take ownership and be experts. That's where the collaboration really happens. Wow. And two of your shows at least have been sold, produced. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What is, how does that happen? What is that process? So, so um, 12 dates, Mm -hmm. 12 dates of Christmas, and Spring Chicken, mm-hmm. is it? No, Spring Chicken. Those two shows. Well, yeah. I have news for you. I've written another play, a four-character, all-female holiday play. And wow. Please tell me it's for women in menopause and that you really need the comedy chops and you need- Oh, girl, I got a part best, for you. You need the best friend. You need the best friend. Okay. I have a part for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I so, have dreamt of being in your shows. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, we can make that happen. I feel like we can really make that happen. So I, yes, it is for an older crowd. <laughs> um, <laughs> one of the things I'm really proud about this cast is that I created a role for a woman in her fifties and then her daughter- who should be probably someone in her 20s who can also play her as a teenager because we see her two times in her life. Um, uh, uh, Another woman who's in her 30s and the fourth character who could be pretty much anywhere in between. So uh, you could have four different generations of women in this play. And um, in recent weeks, I got a a request for the world premiere. I don't want to say any more about that right now because we're still in, we're still working out those details. And then I got a a second call with interest. um, So that could be potentially two productions happening in 2023. Um, but your question was, how do you make that happen? Like, how do you get these yeah. plays produced or um, published? And um, I'm learning. I'm still learning. Um, <laughs> but when I created the 12 Dates of Christmas and I felt like I had something marketable, I t- basically gave it to everybody that I knew. And then nobody will read your play because they have a stack of a thousand plays, right? So nobody except your best friend, Carrie, will read your play. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And come see it wherever come it is. It. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But you're unusual. Um, so, but but I had, um, what worked for me back then, I think is still the thing that works the most, which is you start with your your closest circle. So I was performing at the American Shakespeare Center and I went to that artistic director, my friend Jim Warren, and I was like, I really want you to read this play. I think it has potential here at your theater. And in fact, I have written it for your space and your audience, (laughs) Uh, which didn't hurt. And that worked. But then one production that um, he took a leap and produced my play helped so that the next year, a couple of other people were willing to give it a shot. And after three, then I was really getting the script out there, still just, you know, at home, emailing, trying to find theaters where it might be a good fit from my living room. And then on the next year, I had eight people interested. And it wasn't until I had that that third year, and, and that was the year you saw it at CatCo. In the third year, 
with eight producers um, interested, I I had enough sort of leverage to revisit publishing because initially none of the publishing companies paid attention to me. But now with eight under my belt, I was able to sort of write again and be like, hey, um, I'm Jenna um, from Ohio. Uh, wrote that little play <laughs> that I sent you. Uh, just update. It's getting eight productions this year. And um, I would love to talk more about publishing. And boom, they called me back and they're like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, where is that one? You know, they like dug it out from under the. Wow, that's amazing. And they read it, and then I had a I I had a friend who connected me with a literary agent, and that woman, that agent, was able to help me negotiate a contract, and that and then at that point, I really didn't have to do much with the 12 day didn't have to do too much because now the publisher basically advertises my play but I didn't stop <laughs> for, <laughs> for 10 years I really pushed that play hard I I really and it was it's only been in the last two years where I backed off and I was like okay um it's had over 90 productions Carrie I one of one of my favorite moments during the holiday season is if and when you publish a reel or a promo for it that that shows all of the productions that are currently taking place or that have had taken place yeah. and just all of your all of your your actresses they're just it's so awesome to see just the variety of people because like to me you are that <laughs> character well, it's so it's hard for me to imagine anyone else in that role but it is so great, great when I see like the different playbills and the artwork that people have produced for your show oh, and then yeah. the different actors. I mean, it's just. That's the dream come true. Phenomenal. That is the dream come true. And like, that is the, I could never of like, the, so inherently like through this process, you know, so you said 10 years, like you just, you have just stopped. <laughs> and the funny thing is, is this whole play was written about this single girl who goes on 12 dates and like you are now married with a child yeah, yeah, yeah. like a what a, like a four or five year old how old is katie oh Lynn? god she's eight girl she's eight <laughs> oh my god so, so right like all of this other shit has happened in your life yeah and yet every year you have to revisit this 30 something year old woman this single woman and just like push 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 for these these productions to happen and so what are the inherent lessons in that journey besides just patience and i mean love of that character at its noblest when i set out to write that play i was certainly writing a lead role for myself certainly but i also was careful to create a character that would be attractive to other actors. I was careful. I was like, what do we all really want to do? Like, what do we all as actors, like, you want to get up there. You want someone who's got a journey, who has obstacles to overcome, who gets a lot of really great punchlines. You know, like I wrote, I was like, I am writing for a future of solo female performers, decades of them. I want this to go on and on and on. So um, that, to, I mean, doing the there, there was no finer moment, I don't think, than the the year that I opened that play. And I got to take a curtain call to a full house of tiered seating. And it was this play that I'd written. Maybe my finest moment on stage. I mean, what I felt inside. But the the photos of other actors doing this and their reels. And then even better, Carrie, is when they say things to me like, um, I identify so much with that character. 
you know, and I can, I, or I go and see them doing what I said I had to learn how to do at the age of 21, which is like, bring, bring it, you got to bring it. And they bring so much to it. You know, one time I read this review and it was like, uh, this might be my, my favorite performance I've ever seen, except maybe the author herself. And I was like, um, oh. maybe, <laughs> but like how amazing that like somebody that's not even me brought so much of herself to the role that it, if it felt as authentic, if not more authentic than my own performance of it. I mean, just amazing. Amazing. So yeah. I think that's my, my biggest takeaway was the fact that I was able to do, do the, you know, open this one little door for these pr productions and these female performers. The other, I think is that I had to tr just trust that I like this play and not everybody's going to like it. You know, they're not always going to like it. And it's a lesson that, I mean, I just should like write it on my forehead in a Sharpie because I've got to <laughs> face it again. Now in a couple of weeks, I'm going to do a reading of this next one. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, they're all going to think I'm insane. I'm insane. Like why? No, no who else thinks this stuff is funny? <laughs> You know, so, but I, uh, you know, it's not unlike what we were talking about at the very beginning of this or throughout one of our threads is like, we each have to know what is the thing that we have to offer. And so, you know, I'm going to write these plays. I can't control who's going to like them. I can't control what it is you're going to like about it. All I can control is like, I am proud of it. Is this something that I'm proud of? Does this reflect um, who I am in the world? How I think stories should be told in the world? You know, what does our world need right now? And it's who you are in this world at the moment. You know, you said that you cringe now when you look back on Miss American Pie breaks a stained glass window, but it would be odd if you didn't cringe, you <laughs> yeah, know, I was like, still that girl. Be, oh my God. Yeah. If I like looked at songs that I wrote when I was 14 years old, I'd be like, that is a, that is a masterpiece. Like that's cringy, right? <laughs> like that's so totally it represents who we were in that moment, which is more to me more beautiful than just like a photograph from that moment because these were your words these were your emotions and so 20 years from now you'll look back at 12 dates and go oh it's a little cringy wasn't she cute at age 30 something <laughs> oh it's you know, yeah. thinking that her life was so desperate it's already there I mean I already cringe but like I have to tell you the this funny story occasionally. So some of the references are already outdated, right? If I was writing it in 2009 and I was writing it about some of my dating experience from five years prior, you know, or even more. Um, that, so there's things like um, a payphone and um, a beeper, right. like just little things like that. So I have tried to keep up with that. And occasionally some producing entity will contact me and say, oh, can we make a change to this? And sometimes it has to do with the appearance of the actor. Um, like one time my friend was performing, she's much taller and I had a short joke in there and they were like, this is probably not going to work. Can we? So I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Let me write some other things. And um, anyway, it was a couple of years ago and this company in Canada was doing the play and they contacted me and there were a couple of things that they wanted to change. And um, a couple of them, like I realized I had a term in my play that in some worlds is considered offensive. And I was like, oh, mm. thank you for bringing that to my attention. Yeah, let's take care mm. of that right now. Um, but then there was another one that um, I don't think is like necessarily well, it was just mean. <laughs> it's just like, it was mean. It was just like my characters said something mean and they wanted to change it. And um, I, I was like, so Canada, <laughs> it's a 
<laughs> Sheffield said, so like I, I finished writing the email and I, I went back to Sheffield and I was like, so I, I gave them permission to make these changes here. Um, and I was like, but you know, I kind of feel like, I don't know, like they were telling me and before I, I was going to finish the sentence by saying like, I'm not a very good writer. He goes, that you're mean. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I thought that was like, I wasn't creative enough to come up with something, you know, kind. And he goes, no, I think they're just telling you you're mean, you know, Canadians are nicer. <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah. you're right. Uh, but anyway, there are already, there are things that I have to go like, oh yeah, I think I would amend that if I did that in the future. There are, there are nicer ways or there are other ways of communicating. <laughs> right. Or yeah, or not in that moment. <laughs> um, so you, you are married now. Yeah. You married an actor. You do, you like, you did like, like, you know, marriage 101, which is like not marrying the <laughs> person who does the same thing you do totally. is always on the road but like yeah. but you know what where else are you gonna where else are you gonna find that person who understands all of those things that you've talked about with your personality right and chef Sheffield seems to do that for you and yours appears to be okay I'm comparing this to like our midwestern roots <laughs> it, it appears to be a very you know non-traditional marriage in that you guys spend a lot of time apart right yeah he's on the you know like you're in separate places a lot. Do you want to know something of all the, the speak returning to your title? That is the thing that I think people say to me the most. I could never do that. And be separate from my spouse my, or my partner. We could never do that. That would never work. And I'm like, well, lucky for you. No one is asking you to. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, but well, yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I have so much to say about that about my partnership with Sheffield and um, our careers. And uh, I do believe that he came into my life at the right time. And I came into his life at the right time. And that it, had we met 10 years or 20 years prior, it just never would have happened. We just weren't at the right place. But um, he, he is just like, he's on team Jenna. And he's like we you know he likes the material that I write and he likes me as a performer but he's not afraid to tell me uh to give me criticism <laughs> which we, we have to talk about sometimes I'm like no not on opening night babe not yeah, yeah. Nope. your job <laughs> yeah, tonight yeah. is to tell me that I'm awesome and buy me a drink <laughs> and tell me and, and beautiful and beautiful like, throw that in there beautiful thin yeah. thin all of the all the things that like I don't really need I don't like yeah 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 <laughs> and then yeah. on Sunday morning we can sit over coffee or after the show closes maybe and you can tell me the things <laughs> yeah. I need to work on um but then yeah so we spend a lot of time apart he's in Florida right now playing the lead role in the play network and it is a taxing role and it is I've seen him do it twice now and I just couldn't be more proud. I just could not be more proud because this is the thing about our our jobs is like so much variety. We continue to be stretched and I get to watch him do things like this. And it's like, I had, you know, like it sounds like limiting when I say this, I didn't know you had it in you, but I didn't know he had it in him. <laughs> well, wow. It's a character. Awesome. Like, I didn't know that that lived and I didn't know that was one of the things that lived in him. And, and, and then you go like, wow, that's, um, it's amazing. Um, so we get to continually, I guess, sort of like reveal, you know, and be, and witness that for one another. Um, yeah, he's the freaking coolest. He's, he's, he's so wonderful and, um, willing to do all the parenting on the jobs that I have to go away. So he and Katie, our daughter, Katie Lou have, um, 
a really special relationship. They have these things that don't include me. And I think it's healthy, <laughs> you know? Yes. And then she and I get to have that too. And when he's gone, we get to have our own our own little routine. And then we are also thrilled when we're back together. <laughs> yes. And you, like you live in New York right. most of the year. I know that you spent some time back in Ohio during the pandemic, yeah. was it? Like just to get the hell out of New York more than anything. Yeah, we needed help. Um, here in New York, we live in Queens and we just don't have any, um, we didn't have any outdoor, uh, we didn't have a lot of outdoor access and the playgrounds and parks mm-hmm. had been shut down. So we were like, let's, um, let's get some space. Let's get, let's get out yeah. there. And they were willing they were willing to take us in. <laughs> well, who wouldn't want their lovely daughter and granddaughter and son-in-law? <laughs> Time will tell. Like, I mean, I think in, uh, during COVID, like we, it was for a summer. And so it was kind of contained, but then we went back like the next winter and we didn't really have a leave date. And at a certain point, my dad was like, uh, when are you guys leaving? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That actually sounded like Charlie. Uh, yeah. And so, okay, I, I guess my my point in asking you all about these these personal questions with your marriage and your child and the fact that you are about to do a reading of a show, uh, your new show, you were just on uh, TV. I don't know when you shot that, but you were just on an episode of The Equalizer. Mm-hmm. Was that what it was? Yeah. With um, Queen Latifah. Starring Queen Latifah. Um, so, so you've, so you're still, you've got the acting, television acting. Are you um, doing any stage acting at the moment? Right no, now? but I mean, I submitted two auditions last week and it's still like, um, acting is still a, a, um, an exercise in rejection. <laughs> you know, it is, Oh my gosh! I shouldn't yeah. say it like that. It is an exercise in putting oneself out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I uh, still audition very regularly. Um, but part of why it's very important that I do this solo work that terrifies me is, um, is I don't ever want to whine about like, I'm done acting because people stopped hiring me like that doesn't seem like an okay decision. It seems like a really passive way to handle it. And for as much sort of like barreling and pounding on doors and, um, you know, just gritty pushing forward with this career. When I leave it, it will be because I'm done and I'm not done. So, (laughs) um, I have, I hope not, please don't tell me that. Yeah. (laughs) I've got this solo show to do and that will, um, it's going to force me to, to brush up on my, it's going to force me to do my acting. You know, I gotta, I gotta perform. Um, but it also helps get me out there and shows the theater professionals and the TV professionals and casting professionals like, Oh, oh, still relevant, still knows how to string a a sentence together. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And now is this diary bonfire that you're talking about this? So can you tell me about the show? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, like I said, it's too unwieldy. It's got problems because it's trying to do too many things, but here's the gist of it. Okay. When, when the pandemic hit and my family was in some pretty deep shit, I was like, how did I get here? I am too smart for this <laughs> to have ended up <laughs> in this very small apartment with, with now no income and no job prospects. Um, yes. Two actors, two, two actor writers, two act- of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I have supported, I think, as you know, but supported my creative endeavors by being a fitness instructor. 
Well, you know what we really weren't doing when things closed down? <laughs> Exercising near each other. Right. Um, you know, and I've got this at the time, I had this five-year-old and we were like, we don't, we have nothing, we have nothing. And it's, you know, let me also say we have incredibly supportive family. People called and they were like, look, if you, if you're out of money, you call us. Okay. Um, and it, and it worked out. We, we got by, but there was a really, really scary point. And it wasn't so much about money as I questioned like my, um, my sanity, like who did I think I was to pursue this creative dream? Like how fluffy and um, privileged of me to spend my life doing make-believe and storytelling. Because when shit hits the fan, nobody's buying your stories, sweetheart. And um, uh, I got I got depressed. It wasn't the first time that I've experienced depression, but um, I don't. I hadn't been living in a state of depression. So I didn't know it when it happened. <laughs> it's so funny because when you, you know, all you have to do is go back and look at the things I was writing. And it's like, oh, this girl seems like maybe she could use some Zoloft. <laughs> She's, there's, there's some sadness. <laughs> there's touches of anxiety too, you know. Um, oh. And I, you know, I eventually, like it became pretty clear. And I had a couple of very um, trusting friends who were able to say to me, like, it might be time to you know, try those antidepressants again. And then I was like, oh no, what if I do that? And then all this creative writing goes away. <laughs> oh, isn't that crazy? When it's like, when you hear artists talk about that, it's like, well, if I get sober, then I won't be creative anymore or whatever. Yeah. It's like, yeah. So oh. it's interesting because a lot of what I'm tapping into with Diary and Bonfire is my anxiety. And I'm not living in a place of anxiety right now, but I, but I've decided that I want to tell that story. I'm not, you know what I mean? Like I no longer think I'm depressed and I no longer think like, what was I doing making this choice? So I, but in order to tell that story, I've got to go back to the person who, who felt like that and tell that story. Um, so Diary Bonfire, the title came from the fact that I started writing, I started doing journals um, shortly after my sister's death. And I thought, okay, well, what if before I burn these to the ground, I go back and sort of investigate and figure out um, what was it about, what was it about that turning point that led me to where I am right now? This like, uh, let's say instability, instability that I was experiencing at the time. And um, okay, so I've told you it's unwieldy, right? So now we have a couple of things. We've got death and anxiety. We have the effect of my sister's death on how I became an anxious person, how I um, I hold on really tightly. There are certain things, um, traffic, <laughs> anything about mm cars and vehicles makes me really nervous. Um, of course I'm a mom now. So like, hold on really tightly to that. And, um, how her death not only made me an anxious person, but it made me a, um, very driven person. And that at that time in my life, I was like, there is no room for a small life. There is no I can't do it. I have to take absolutely everything I can get because the good Lord has granted me these years. And that is, you know, also known as survivor's guilt, <laughs> I think, which is to say, like, I think I believed it should have been me. 
And I know I'm not the only surviving sibling in the world to have these feelings, but that I was like, this does, this makes no sense. Like this Katie, this sister was so beloved and so good. And, and, um, I'm a rotten asshole. <laughs> like I should have been. The oh one. man. Right. And those yeah, are hard things yeah. to face, but I guess sort of like my deal with the universe was like, okay, um, if I'm, I'm the one to survive, then I better make this worth it. And then there I go, you know, and I moved, I like lived in Chicago, LA and New York all before I was 30. I was throwing my work out there in front of people, um, in some of the most vulnerable ways possible. Um, it, it, I, it's not like, I mean, it's risk-taking in a sense, but it was risk-taking inside this chosen world. So that's sort of what Diary Bonfire explores is like what that what that did to me, how and and how it pushed me in, into, you know, for better and for worse, the human being that I am now. <laughs> <laughs> and is it hard to go back? Like I'm getting tense just thinking about going back to those times. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Back to those. It's got to be so hard to go back to those. It's hard. Both, both in the writing process and in the performing process. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. The reading. The reading of yeah, it. well, I'll get back to you on the reading. I don't really know. I've, I will say that I've invited um, no assholes. I no assholes are invited. <laughs> like only people that I love and trust because it's going to be. Um, it, I don't know. It could be difficult, and so I want to know that I'm looking out at a sea of faces that I want to be looking at. Um, but the writing of it, I keep. This was interesting, Carrie. Is I keep going back and I keep. Um, so the writing needs to live in a place of a good portion of it needs to live in a place of anxiety of troubled right? And I keep going back and trying to fix it. And I'll be looking at, I was doing it this morning. I'm like reading through the section and I'm like, it's not working. Why isn't this working? I'm like, oh, because I am trying to write it from what I know now. I'm trying to fix it from what I know now sitting here today in 2023. And you can't know what you know now. <laughs> yes, that is, that is, um, I, I'm not even sure what the right word is. I mean, it's like, I guess the literal definition is like hindsight. You're trying to deal with hindsight, but like, oh my God, to, to challenge yourself, to not answer your own dilemma. Yeah. It's a uh, really uncomfortable. <laughs> I will tell you that it's really uncomfortable here by oh, my kitchen my table. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. But it's also funny, right? And this is the hard thing is like, we started talking about this at the very beginning is, you know, using humor. And that I, you know, I'm talking about these really, I mean, I'm talking literally about um, coffins, like I'm talking about dead bodies in caskets, like not funny, not funny at all. But I'm telling funny stories, like I'm telling these funny stories. Here's one, here's something that is not too explicit. But um, when I attended my sister's funeral, I didn't have a nice dress. So I had like I we had to go shopping. Kelly, my little sister and I had to go shopping. And um I did eventually get a nice dress for the um I don't know. We, I, there were like three things and I needed a dress for like three things, right? Cuz you do mm -hmm. at least, you know, if the, the Catholic Mm -hmm. community a couple of showings right yeah. you have these showings and then there is the funeral and it was february so whatever it is got to be warm um so anyway i bought i did buy a couple of dresses but um there was one the only thing that i owned was this white sweater set <laughs> and it was um too big <laughs> i'm laughing because i i literally wore it at the funeral so you saw me in it and whether you remember or not you saw me wear this I, I right? so i had like a turlac and it's cable knit and a white, like off white color and a skirt of the same material that matched, but it was so big. I had to roll 
it up at the waist. And the thing on top must have been monstrous. I don't know why I felt like this was, and my shoes were too small, but it was like, I couldn't trouble my mom. Like, it's like, we're not buying new shoes, right? Anyway, as I tell it in in, um, Diary Bonfire, it's like, (laughs) I had this dress that was two sizes too big for me. And I'm pretty sure if Katie could have spoken, she would have lifted her head up out of her casket and been like, your dress is too big. You look like a snowman. Which is not okay. Like, it's not okay to make jokes like that, but I don't know how else to talk. (laughs) It is okay. It is okay. Because if it wasn't okay, that is art. Like that is, that is what our world needs. Like, that's why we need artists and writers like you to talk about these things and to say these things that, that we all feel or think, you know, like, uh, just don't, you can't edit and that. Don't like, judge. Don't judge. Like right? That's just saying, yeah, don't judge. Don't well, judge. I like, know. I know. And it's like, a take uh, it or leave it situation too. Right. Because like you and I might find that hilarious, but there might be somebody else who's like, Oh, I don't, I don't want to think <laughs> like, I don't want to go there. Yes. But, you know, yeah, hopefully yeah. in a, in a, in a full length play, right. There's going to be enough that there are enough things that will be acceptable <laughs> that everybody walks yes. away with something. <laughs> but again, and then I have to like, you're right. I can't judge and I can't edit too much. I have to just go with like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to trust. I know in my heart where this lives and where it's funny. And like, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to be writing for an audience. Um, it says, what do they call it? Um, your private audience in acting, they call it your, who's your private audience. Um, but it's something similar for me in writing that it's like, if I imagine that you're listening, um, my friend Sully, um, my sisters, like as I'm writing this stuff, it's like, who is your private audience? And I'm like, oh my God, my sister would think that was hilarious. I know she would. She would find that hilarious. And if I'm wrong, you know, well, she'll strike me down. <laughs> she'll let you, I was gonna say, she'll let you know. Some Something will happen. She'll let you know. Um <laughs> Gosh, can you live stream this thing? Like, I know it's a private reading, no. but man, what I wouldn't give to be able to see this this reading. You're the second person to ask about recording. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see. Maybe we'll do an audio recording of it. Maybe we'll do an audio so I can share it or we'll see. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, ideally, I, and- you know, the, the goal would be, right? Like, so I do a reading. I'll get some feedback. Um, I'll do some rewrites. But the goal would be to get it produced. The goal is to you know, figure out. And it's not, that's not an easy thing to do is the solo show. In some ways it's really attractive for people because it's affordable to produce, but I'm not, I'm not famous enough for them to really necessarily take a, a, a chance on me. So I'm still working inside a circle of theaters where I have a relationship, but yes, you can, um, you can bet <laughs> that I'll be pressing if it's at, at all good. If it goes at all well at the end of the month when I do my reading, I'll be pressing forward. Oh, Jenna, I can't wait. Everything that you put out in this world is priceless. <laughs> like it is just so it's so good. And and I speak on behalf of all of your friends that have known you for for decades and forever. Like like you are a gift to all of us. Oh, and I I mean that with all sincerity. Like everyone needs that friend that just kind of lives in that, in that weird space that you live in. 
everyone wants that like non-traditional like theater actor artist friend and you're that for so many of us well you're that the feeling so is mutual I am inspired by you and your humor and your work and this podcast so I'm glad we have each other after all of many many years Oh, I'm going to put the photos of us, uh, <laughs> some of our early gem photos that we have of you doing my hair at prom, like, That's a and, huge like straight up aquanet. Yeah, it's a huge mistake. Like, there's a lot of aquanet in that. There were also a lot of breasts right. in that as well. Right, right, right. Um, and I just want to yeah. say for the record, like, I think your, I thought your hair looked wonderful. When I go back and look at those pictures, <laughs> I'm like, I... <laughs> First of all, I can't believe you let me do that. But also, you let me do that knowing <laughs> what my hair looked like. Like, you saw me go to high school every day and you were like, yeah, her. I need the, and, and like, it was the bangs. I was like, I need my bangs to actually get out of frame. Like, I need them because every photo of Hoban, like, her, there's like only half of your bangs are showing because the rest of them are like straight up out of the camera frame. Oh, yeah. Like, sculpture, hair sculpture. God, I just, just, oh, but who didn't want to be you, right? I mean, come on. Oh, they're out there. Let's, let's not ask that too widely. Okay. uh, (laughs) I don't need to read those responses. I read reviews of my plays. That's enough. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I don't know how you do that. I, I, yeah, there, I've written some articles for different publications and I've read some of the comments and it, it can destroy. Oh, yeah any sense of pride you've ever had in yourself. Yeah. People um, are brutal. One bad comment. Yeah. People are brutal. People are, people are brutal, but I think you've, you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said like, you just still have to just put it out there. Like you have to trust, you have to trust in what you're writing. Yes. And, and then, and there's this other thing, which I don't think I said explicitly, which is use your powers for good. And, um, you know, uh, I, I don't like mean humor. I don't like mean criticism. I just don't like them. And so I can't put that out into the world either. I've got to be, well, I guess I just said I was mean in my play, but I mean, I think we have to be aware of that, right? So in my case, um, if my gift is this sort of like, uh, I'm willing to live in the world of emotions and then transfer it to you as a a community, it's you, I got to use those powers for good. Like, is it helping? Does that help? Are we helping or are we hindering the situation, you know? And the same thing is true for humor and the same thing is true for criticism, which is like, just use your powers for good. You know, there is criticism out there that is really, really valuable. Let's use use it good, like help somebody with that. Don't tear them down. And I have no, I just don't have use. I don't have room in my life now for anybody who's going to tear me down. I just do not. Assholes, not welcome. We don't. I love you. <laughs> love you too. I love you. <laughs> I love you. This has been, this has been such a treat and we did not do a pre-interview. We did not know what we were going to talk about when we came in here. I had a few notes, but I was like, this is, it has to be raw. And uh, so yeah, I, I appreciate you. I love you so much. Feeling is mutual. I feel like you should and- maybe just do a little bit of the sun will come out tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Actually, I was hoping that we could do like it's a hard knock life, but <laughs> hmm. I might, I might, but you go first. All right. Um, when I'm stuck with the day, that's great. I'm like four octaves lower <laughs> than I was when I was 18. Good, that's it. Of that's course, it. my, my, my boobs aren't ace bandaged up either. Like they were in right. high Maybe school. Maybe we should Do get ace that? bandages and come back and we'll get a, a higher octave. I know. 
that's lonely. No, no, I'm not going to sing. Okay. I can't. I already told you I can't sing. I talk sing. Even the songs that I write now, today, as an adult, when I do write songs and perform them, which I've done occasionally, um, I still just talk sing them. Uh-huh. Like, Do you remember your favorite line from um, Annie? From? Um, that you said. <laughs> well, okay, I was because I was going to do the one that you said, which is awesome. Oh, uh, no, that wasn't. Uh, I didn't say that line. Mine was, um, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Who, one of some, one of the characters said, oh, now what? Yeah, Pepper. That's Pepper. Um, I only. Oh, my God. I can tell that. I can tell that your daughter is in, is rehearsing the show, right? I only know so, it because she, her musical theater group is learning it. And um, so I got to watch them do Maybe. They shared the song Maybe, these like four little girls. And at the end of it, my little girl exits the stage. And I was like, where is she going? And she comes back on with this like little like fancy jacket and these earrings and high heels. And she's like, you'll stay up until this dump shines like the top of my face. I could not have been more proud that she was double cast as Molly and then Miss Hannigan at the age of eight. Come on. (laughs) And and you know, what's so weird is that I do remember dialogue from the other characters, but for the life of me, I cannot come up with a stand up, a standout line. It was just not a ton of dialogue, but there would have been a lyric. I would have thought you'd have a lyric that maybe. I mean, used to room. In a tomb where I'd sit and breathe. Yeah. Get me now. Holy cow. Could someone pinch me, please? Oh, that's oh, a good one. Now I'm going to do it. Yeah. And remember um, our friend Maggie saying the um, NYC and got to be that. Oh, it's yeah. just that one little moment, but it's such a brilliant part for somebody. NYC just got here this morning. NYC. Three bucks, two bags, one me. I think yes. that one all is just such a well-written line. Isn't it great? It is. And that's, I go back to us in high school because I just remember like you were going to do like the dancing, like what was the fame fountain or something? Yes. We were near the uh, Lincoln Art Center. Yes. Um, I'm getting my touristy monuments maybe mixed no, up. No, you have it right. Is that right? Lincoln yeah, Center. Because you were going to, you were Lincoln Center. That's right. You were going to be dancing in front of that fountain someday. And I was going to be on the road with Debbie Gibson. And, um, <laughs> and we both both you have been on the road with Debbie Gibson, not singing, sort of, sort of. but you have been with sort her of. in other cities. I have many, <laughs> many. We're BFFs. She just doesn't realize it yet. I think she does. <laughs> I think she knows. I think she, she can't admit she it to the, she probably can't admit it and, and put all her other fans, her other fans in a, a separate category. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. This has gone off the rails. Oh, I cannot wait to see this next play that she has in the works. Jenna Girl, I am one of your biggest fans, and there are many. And some of my takeaways from this episode, besides keep in touch with your friends, for crying out loud, is to never lose sight of who you are inherently on the inside. If you're born to dance, dance. If you're born to write, write. If you're born to sing, sing. Just don't ever let anyone tell you that you can't do something. You can learn more about Jenna and her work at jennahoban.com. Of course, I will put a link to that in the show notes. And as always, I want to thank you for supporting an independent podcast like this one. And you can support this podcast by 
dropping a little change into buy me a coffee. And I will put that link in the show notes as well. Until next time, if you think you can or you can't, you're right. Have a great week.